information we receive in the strictest confidence. You're listening to the news on RTHK. The impossible takes two days and miracles take three. Where you've got so many different departments and divisions. Shaping investors' expectations. Well, good morning all. It's Tuesday, 4th of August, and this is your daily business show, bringing you all the breaking news, money for nothing. Well, Renita is our first producer and then presenter of the show, but she's left for new pastures, and we wish her the best of luck. But the show must go on. For the next two weeks, you have me, Richard Harris. Your business headlines this morning. LIBOR rate-rigging trials claimed its first victim as trader Tom Hayes is jailed for 14 years. Greek shares plunge on the first day of market reopening. HSBC's pre-tax profit is up 10% in the first half of the year. And in other news, Puerto Rico pays a mere US dollars of its current debt repayment of $58 million. The 3.5 million people of Puerto Rico owe US$72 billion US dollars between them. If you think this looks like baby grease, it is. Well, today our special subject is China, and uh, we're led through by the very experienced Hong Kong and China market commentator, Francis Lun of Geosecurities. And we look at the the consumer in China with market research expert James Roy of the China Market Research Group. And in the hot seat today as our guest host is the very well-rounded Peter Churchhouse, uh, and I say that purely because his experience stretches from being one of Hong Kong's foremost property analysts to head of research of a major firm looking at all of the markets, especially in Asia. He's also the founder and editor of the Market News and Views Sheet, the Church House Letter. Morning, Peter. Good morning, Richard. How are you this morning? I'm very well. Welcome to the hot seat. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm slightly used to it by now. But uh, one thing that strikes me, Peter, uh, reading a bit of your newsletter, you're, you're always very bullish on Asia, as we all tend to be living in Asia. But uh, let's face it, the market has been pretty poor recently. Currencies don't look good. You know, maybe the dream hasn't turned out as much as we'd hoped. Well, we're certainly in a down phase, that's for sure. If we look at the Morgan Stanley uh, Emerging Market Index, uh, it's down about 5.9% uh, year to date, and that embraces not just uh, Asia, but the rest of the emerging market world as well. Uh, but yet the developed market world is up by 7.9%. So uh, the emerging markets are definitely underperforming, and certainly uh, in terms of currencies, that's very much the, the case. The only currency really that's pretty stable and with very low volatility has been the renminbi in China. Every other emerging market currency has been extremely volatile and some down as much as 15, 20%. But the renminbi has been very, very stable indeed. So uh, if you've been... associated with the renminbi, you probably haven't done too bad, even in the stock market, which is off, as we know, a lot uh, in the last month or so. Yeah, I think what people often forget with investments, that currency is a canvas on which it's all written. So as the uh, the currency moves, uh, so do our investments. Well, that's true. And, and also, if you just take a look at bond markets ar- around the world, we tend to think, in our business, we tend to think only in terms of equities. But in actual fact, in emerging markets over the last six months, 12 months, uh, bonds have actually done a lot better uh, than equities uh, in most emerging markets year to date and over the last 12 months but certainly year to date for sure okay let's have a bit more news uh, former city trader tom hayes has been found guilty at a london court of rigging global libor interest rates the jury found hayes guilty on all eight charges of conspiracy to defraud he was sentenced to 14 years in prison the accusations are summarized by jonty bloom of the bbc 
The global credit crunch meant banks almost stopped lending to each other at all because they didn't know which banks might go to the wall. As a result, some started fiddling the LIBOR rate to make it look like they were in a better state than they were. When that fact emerged, it soon turned out that the LIBOR market was also being rigged by some dealers to make bigger profits and earn larger bonuses. LIBOR is used as a benchmark for trillions of pounds of global borrowing and lending. To give us a summary of the case, Alex Crystal, who's Professor of Banking at the Cass Business School, spoke to the BBC. The one thing you have to know is that you can't influence LIBOR on your own. Uh, LIBOR is a, an average of um, re- 18 reporting banks and they drop the lowest four of those and they drop the highest four of those. And so it's the middle 10 which are, are, are taken into account when working out the average uh, LIBOR rate. And therefore, if you want to influence that rate, you have to influence other banks as well. And that's where the cooperation or uh, you know, attempt to influence your mates in other dealing rooms would, would come in. Many of the world's leading banks have already paid heavy fines for tampering with the key benchmark. Hayes rigged LIBOR daily for nearly four years while working in Tokyo for UBS and then Citigroup from 2006 until 2010. Liam Vaughan of Bloomberg has been sitting in on the trial and gives his summary. He's the first guy, actually, to stand trial around the whole world for rigging LIBOR. So what happened is there was a big multinational investigation into what went on that concluded from about 2012, 2013. So that's why you've seen all these fines for different institutions like Barclays, if you remember when Bob Diamond ended up resigning from his post and at UBS and at Royal Bank of Scotland. So they've all been fined. And now, you know, it was the time to go after individuals. And Hayes was, rightly or wrongly, always kind of portrayed as the kind of ringmaster, was the guy that took this loophole in, in the way that libel was set and took it to another level. And so that was why he was the first to take the stand So, you know, from here, we've got uh, another case that's lined up at at Southwark Court in a couple of months. Six individuals that are accused of working with Hayes. So, you know, they would have been watching, obviously, (laughs) the outcome of today uh, with with keen interest. This is the first, and and the serious fraud officers have had success, and he's been sent to prison for 14 years, which is a very long sentence. Peter, uh, this LIBOR issue, 14 years. I mean, you get less for murder. Yeah, it's a pretty brutal sentence, I have to say. You know, that's, uh, uh, yeah, you, you'd expect, um, you'd expect uh, some sort of custodial sentence, but 14 years is pretty, uh, is, is pretty hard, uh, pretty hard. And, and as your uh, commentator said before, uh, you can't do this on your own. Uh, this is, uh, this is a group think for sure. Uh, and so I'm, I'm fully expecting that you'll see more cases coming. But uh, if that's the benchmark that we're going to be going by, I think there's going to be a lot of worried people uh, sitting around dealing rooms in uh, various parts of the world right now. I can see uh, Francis Lund, uh, yeah. CEO of Geo Securities, uh, sitting there keen to get in. Well, I think that is really a very, very tough sentence. I think uh, Nick Neeson got something like four years or something, something like, like that, that yeah. for bankrupting uh, bearings. So I think uh, that really the uh, punishment really far exceeds the, the, the crime because <laughs> it, it, it's a white-collar crime. Nobody expects a white-collar crime to get such a long sentence. No, Thank chances you. are we'll probably see it go to appeal. The Greek stock index was shut just before Athens imposed capital controls at the height of the debt crisis. It ended the day down just 16%, uh, although most market operators were looking at a 20% fall. The banks fell as much as 30%, which was the maximum allowed.
Elsewhere, renewed concerns about the health of the Chinese economy helped drive industrial commodity prices down sharply. Treasury bond yields hit two-month lows at 2.15% after the release of weak manufacturing figures in the U.S. The S&P fell half a percent to 2,098. The tech-heavy Nasdaq index fell a quarter of a percent to 5,115. Apple had a bad day, falling 2.5% to $118.44, and it's now fallen about 10% since its February peak. Europe was buoyed by better earnings, with the euro stock index rising 1%, while mining and energy stocks came under pressure as Brent crude tumbled 5.5% to a fresh six-month low uh, just a few minutes ago of $49.30. Gold held at uh, $1,086 an ounce, and the price of copper touched a fresh six-year low in London. Um, In Asia, the purchasing managers index in Chinese weighed a little bit on the market. Shanghai was down 1.1%. Hong Kong was down a percent to 24,411, and the Nikkei lost just a sixth yesterday. The euro is trading at uh, $1.95, and the pound at uh, $1.56. Commodity currencies also come under some pressure with the Canadian dollar now at $1.31 and the Aussies at uh, just 72 and 82 cents. Uh, the loonie, which is the word for the uh, Canadian dollar that market, uh, market makers lose, use was touching an 11-year low. Shares of HSBC rose almost 2% in yesterday's trading after the bank posted better-than-expected earnings. That's the biggest increase in the share price in, in a month. Um, aftermarkets, uh, both in, in London and New York, the, uh, the price was only just slightly up. But James Ferguson of Macro Strategy Partners lays out the picture. Well, HSBC um, always had sort of in the past anyway these sort of global aspirations when we talked about bulge bracket banks, etc. But their um, forays abroad have not always been terribly uh, happy. Um, and the core of the bank, the old Hong Kong Shanghai Bank and its, uh, uh, its Asian business, and the other core, the Midland Bank and its UK business, they've always done really relatively well. But forays into the US most obviously have always come a cropper um, and and same with sort of you know other sort of uh, more tentative forays into Latin America Turkey and and other places like that so it seems that like many banks in a more regulatory uh, challenging world it's not necessarily worth being good for the uh, big for the sake of being big mm. um, and therefore they're sort of pulling um, their tentacles back in and thinking where they should concentrate and really paying much more attention rather than to size to profitability so big is not beautiful anymore. It's making money that counts. Let's turn back to Francis of Geosecurities for our today's deep dive in China. Francis, um, <laughs> yep. uh, Gulliver's Travels, uh, where do you think he's going with this? <laughs> uh, well, I think, I, I, I think the government has uh, made a mess of the market rescue. I think last week they were trying, the Chinese government were trying to get from Hong Kong and Singapore exchange the list of uh, sellers in the market, <coughs> in the market, and they're creating all kinds of excuses to, to, well, investigate people who are, who are acting against the market, who, whoever short sells the market, whoever sold the index down, they they are going to fund, uh, pick them up, and then fund them heavily. It sounds they, almost like the Europeans. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> right. Put them in uh, sixteen-year jail sentences, etc., like that. That's too good for them. Yeah, with with a with a, a environment like that, who will want to invest in China? I I really doubt anyone want want to go to uh, buy buy stocks in China now. But people always come back, don't they? You know, I remember when I thought yeah. nobody would invest. In Malaysia, when they 
close the market, but people always come back. Yeah, they? yeah, people have a short memory, but uh, this time maybe at least one year. So you, you can you can basically forget about China and Hong Kong market for the rest of the year at least. I think uh, I just don't see any upside for the moment. What about you, Peter? Well, uh, there's just a never-ending round of, of uh, events and policies which always seem to be terribly contradictory. For example, yesterday, and I reported this morning, uh, that uh, some senior government official is saying there's no need for any substantial stimulus in the Chinese economy. Everything's okay, no problem, don't expect any further stimulus. Well, I, I fully expect that to be reflected negatively uh, in the stock market in the next day or so, uh, if that's genuinely what the, the Chinese government is really thinking because the consensus has been that there is going to be a continuing pattern of stimulus both of the economy mm. and the stock market over the coming months and if they're generally saying we're not going to do that uh, then I expect to see further weakness in the in the markets here. But uh, shouldn't the market be, be taking this with, with a pinch of salt? I mean we, we are actually seeing the Chinese authorities they've been consistent in saying we're not going to put stimulus into the economy although they have. But the other thing is you mentioned the renminbi a little bit earlier that been consistent in in keeping the renminbi strong and they have done that and these are two issues that you would have thought if you're trying to kickstart your economy you'd want to give it stimulus you'd want to weaken the currency well no that, that's exactly right and that's why i think they probably will not uh, weaken the currency uh, particularly over the course of the next uh, uh, six months or so uh, and part of that i think is to do with uh, china's bid to join the special drawing rights and the imf uh, and, uh, uh, and and in fact the imf came out last week basically saying, yes, we think all this intervention in the market that the Chinese authorities have been doing is good stuff. Carry on, chaps, <laughs> uh, kind of thing. So uh, I, I think they're just gearing up here. They've widened the band, the trading band for the currency a little bit. Uh, so you can expect to see a little bit more volatility. But a 15% decline in the renminbi over the course of this coming few months, I don't think so. But think about the equity market. Very few really uh, foreign investors uh, on a big scale have really entered the Chinese equity market, the A shares and so on. It's been a relatively small band of brave souls who've, who've entered that market. So I, I think what's been happening in the last month or so will keep those folks uh, uh, well and truly at bay and say, I told you so, uh, we'll stay out. Francis? Well, and there, there's something uh, contradictory uh, coming out. Uh, yesterday, you see the Asians uh, falling some two percent or something like that. Hong Kong market falling one percent, but the uh, ETF, the Asia A50 ETF, ETF actually rose. So, so some people, well, some institutions obviously think that China market has fallen enough. But that's a, that's a good point I'd like to put to both of you, Francis, first. Yeah. Yeah. We all know that markets eventually find some sort of support, some sort of bottom. We're currently at around yeah. 3,600 on the Shanghai Composite. Mm. Where do you think we might be finding some real support here? I think, I, I think a, a reasonable level is really 3,000 because mm. you, you, uh, you, you take out the banks and the oils. Uh, the, the median or average PE for Asia is a some, still at about 30 times 
and compare that with uh, 16 times in S&P and, and the Euro stocks, I think. Uh, so even at 3,600, I think Asia shares are still overvalued. So you reckon come down. So you reckon around 20% overvalued? Yeah, def- definitely, definitely. Peter? Uh, that's probably not a bad guess. I think that's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, uh, common sense in that. Uh, but having, having said that, you look at the, the, uh, the ETFs, for example, that's mm. been probably bought more by foreigners than, uh, mm-hmm. than by, by locals. And uh, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of research coming across my desk from all sorts of pundits who are saying, right, time to get back into China and so on. <laughs> uh, I'm not convinced of that. I think we've got a little more volatility to go. And I, and I think uh, somewhere around about the 3,000 level would, would, would look like a possibly a good re-entry point again. We've, we've uh, jumped out of the market uh, six mm. weeks ago and, mm. and, uh, uh, and, and, and we'll stay out until we see uh, a bit more stability in the market itself. We're ha- very happy with the currency. Uh, we're very happy with the bond market, uh, but uh, less comfortable with the equity market right now. And um, uh, how about you, Francis? What If you were going to go back in, what are the kind of things, what are the kind of issues you'd be looking at as indicators? Well, I, I think, first of all, the government has to leave the market alone. I think there has been really too much government intervention. And uh, uh, when, when the market uh, did not respond the way that they wanted to and they, and they, and they have a very heavy hand intervening, and really, it takes out the uh, interest out of the market and really make the market dead right now. And 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 and, and I think uh, it is about time that uh, uh, the authorities leave the market alone and let it, let the market decide what is the correct level for the market, and then we can we can get back into. Okay, moving to Hong Kong, yeah. uh, we've got a, a dynamic uh, chairman in Stuart Gulliver in HSBC, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, shaking it up in a way it has been shaken before, focusing more on profitability rather than size. Mm-hmm. Would you be a buyer? Yeah, I've, I, I think that's the right way of doing it. I think uh, uh, the Americas has have been a nightmare for HSBC, especially the US, U.S. banking authorities that uh, fined them for I, 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 I don't remember how much. And I think uh, they, they need to concentrate on what they do best, which is really in Asia. And uh, I think uh, uh, maybe the worst is over for HSBC. We should uh, be buying HSBC now. Francis, it's always a pleasure uh, speaking to you and uh, yeah. hearing what you've got to say, and we look forward to seeing yeah. you very soon. That's okay. Francis Lund, CEO of Geosecurities. Drivers who intend to use private cars to carry passengers for hire or reward, whether booked through mobile applications or other means, are reminded that their vehicle must hold a hire car permit issued by the Transport Department. Offenders are liable to a fine of $5,000 and three months imprisonment on first conviction, and their vehicle license will also be suspended.
Well, we've got another angle on China now uh, from the market research point of view and the consumer. Uh, we've got James Roy, who's assistant principal uh, of China Market Research Group uh, in Shanghai. He's currently in Shanghai. His area of focus is consumer products, retail, travel, and tourism. Good morning, James. Morning. Great to be on the program again. Yeah, well, great to hear from you. Now, um, hearing so much bad news about China and the economy, and it's always good to have somebody on the spot. What is the consumer actually doing in China? Well, it, it's, it's definitely true that you know in the last, this summer, um, with the with the poor performance of the stock market um, here, you know, consumer confidence has taken a hit. Um, people are not as optimistic, uh, you know. In our when we talk with consumers, optimism is very clearly, um, you know, uh, is very clearly down. People have been taking their money out of uh, out of securities, um, thinking about other things to do with it. But it doesn't mean that they they're completely uh, stopping spending. So one area we're seeing that still has strong growth is, uh, you know, is tourism. That's uh, People are still looking to go outside, and that's one thing people are really looking to spend their money on. Um, that's really the, the, the one thing that they're kind of still saving their money to, to, to spend on. That's ahead of, you know, where it's kind of the position where luxury goods and big brands kind of used to be. Um, so there's still a lot of cachet in going abroad. That's one area where there's, a good, there's still strong growth. The other area is, uh, you know, still e-commerce, online um, retail sales. You know, there's a shift from sort of bricks and mortar onto online. Um, they uh, online uh, retail sales, I think, grew about 38 uh, percent just in the last quarter. So, looking uh, at so those are still very healthy areas of the economy, um, but they're still there. But uh, but uh, consumer uh, confidence is not where it was a year ago. Uh, looking at tourism, it's kind of interesting. They're looking at going outside, maybe actually to buy their luxury goods. What are the destinations that are coming through? Well, so so uh, so people are traveling abroad. One one reason is to buy luxury goods, but that's really kind of more of a secondary reason compared to where the way it used to be when people would sort of flock into Hong Kong and buy and and go shopping at uh, in TST. Uh, there, you know, that's. That, uh, but you still are seeing plenty of uh, travel to uh, one area right now that's benefiting from that. That's just sort of shopping. The differential in price is Japan. Um, but, but more and more people are traveling for leisure and for new experiences. Uh, so they're going abroad to places like Indonesia, Thailand, other places in Southeast Asia, Europe. Um, it's really becoming more and more of a status symbol in the way that sort of a Gucci bag or a, a Louis Vuitton or Chanel bag used to be to go to somewhere that your friends haven't been before and then post a you know photo of yourself in those places in these sort of exotic locations. Hopefully, with a famous person. <laughs> James, right, just uh, uh, quickly, um, are we seeing traditionally we've seen uh, tourists from Asia, particularly from China and Japan and so on, have been you know the flag-toting tour guides with. Many little ducklings following behind them, uh, and we see that in Italy and so on. Are, are we starting to see more individual travel from China? People going doing their own thing rather than in, uh, in, in big groups and so on. Absolutely, much more, uh, much more so. Uh, you know, individual, independent travel. So, I mean, a part of that was. It uh, has to do with relaxations and restrictions on individual travel. There's a lot of uh, more opening up in that area, and you have more, many more experienced travelers now from China who are more comfortable going out on their own or in groups of friends and exploring new places on their own. And there's a lot more resources available to them 
you know, online in Chinese, uh, you know, giving them advice on where to go and what sort of things to try. So Chinese are becoming more confident, um, you know, as tourists and uh, and trying uh, more places out on their own. That said, there's still plenty of first-time overseas travelers who will still uh, be, you know, seeking kind of the comfort of that, uh, you know, of that group tourism experience. Um, one other area that you're seeing a lot of growth as well is, uh, you know, is in cruises. And so that's kind of a big sort of, uh, you know, uh, family-focused, uh, you know, sort of tourism play where you also kind of get, uh, you know, the opportunity to gamble once you sort of hit, hit international waters. That appeals to sort of everybody. Mm, uh, naturally, you know, two, two birds with one stone. Um, is, is any of this cannibalizing? You, you know, you were talking about Tim uh, Choi uh, being a favored destination. We also have Macau, of course, which is a favored destination. Are they losing business as a result? Yeah, certainly Hong Kong um, you know, is not as, uh, as uh, you know, uh, clearly considered a, de- a destination as it was. People have been shifting to South Korea and now especially more to Japan because of worries about the MERS in Korea. Um, for Macau, you know, it's experiencing a lot more uh, competition. Um, you know, the VIP market, which has been so key to, uh, to you know, the high roller gambling uh, market has been so key to uh, Macau gambling revenues, is, is has really sharply declined there because of uh, the ongoing anti-corruption campaign. Um, uh, you know, and, the, and within the mass market, there's more competition from other places, uh, but still room for growth. I, you'll, I think you'll continue to see um, developments in Macau and people traveling there to, to gamble. But overall, the emphasis there is to change it more into a sort of a leisure, family-friendly, sort of diversified away from pure, hardcore gambling. In that, uh, in that vein... In that vein, James, I mean, uh, yes, Macau has always been, as you say, hardcore gambling in the past, and it's becoming, uh, it's, it's trying to pitch itself more at uh, a family business and so on. But for the operators, for the hotels and so on, uh, isn't that a much lower return business than, uh, than you would have expected with the sort of very much more focused on the gambling side? It is, but yeah, they need more of a reason for people to go to Macau than to you know all the other locations that uh, that, that are that are opening up. They're also you know under under some pressure from the local government as well as the you know mainland Chinese government James, to make, make it more family friendly. It's true. A lot of the the uh, sort of shows and other sort of entertainment. Um, you know, extravaganzas that have been put on haven't succeeded that much. And it's be- partly because people haven't really thought of Macau in those terms up until now. James, for, we're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid, because um, uh, time's beaten us. But we really appreciate you coming on, and thank you very much. That's James Roy, who's the assistant principal at China Market Research Group. And then just to finish off today, looking at the opening of the markets, Australian Seoul uh, up a tick, just um, Seoul is at 2013, Australia 5,674, and the Nikkei's down about a third of a point at 20,477. Peter, uh, what are you looking at at the moment? Uh, well, we're basically looking at um, all the sort of sectors and uh, and countries that have actually uh, collapsed in the last uh, 12 months. We're looking to see if there's some opportunities. Ah, so there. the contrarian route. <laughs> Trying, yes. Good. Well, that, that's what we like. Well, thank you very much, um, Peter. Peter Churchhouse, who's the author of the Churchhouse Letter. Uh, always a pleasure to see you, and we'll see you again too. Uh, just to close Money for Nothing today, the weather, it'll be fine. It'll actually be very hot during the day with a maximum temperature of around 33 degrees with light winds. The outlook remaining mainly fine and very hot in the next few days. 
Stay tuned for Peter Lewis and Biz Extra, but first the news read by Samantha Butler. Democratic Party lawmaker Helena Wong has criticised the government's method of testing drinking water at public housing suspected of having high levels of lead. The government has downplayed the severity of the scandal, saying it's tested 25 public estates and found only seven with excessive lead levels. Ms Wong told RTHK this morning the government wasn't following methods recommended by the US Environmental Protection Agency to test the first draw of the water, but instead waiting a few minutes, by which time some toxins may have been flushed away. She said she believed the problem wasn't just present at public housing. The coordination among different policy bureaus is not as effective as we want it to be. Since this water contamination issue has become a, I would say it is quite disastrous because it spreads from one housing essay to another housing essay. And we can anticipate that we will have more and more public housing essay, including private housing essay, having this kind of problem. And the number of people with high lead in their blood level will be getting more and more. And it seems that at this stage, the government just do not have the kind of momentum and power to solve the same disaster. Mm. President Obama has unveiled what he described as the most important step America has ever taken to combat climate change. Here's Radio Australia's Ben Knight. Barack Obama says that by the year 2030, the United States will put 32% less carbon into the atmosphere than it did 10 years ago. The single most important step America has ever taken in the fight against global climate change. It will be achieved by setting limits on carbon emissions from power plants and giving electricity generators incentives to develop and use renewable energy sources. The president says...